You know, I really like to think of myself as magnanimous and open-minded. Don't you? Heck, <laughs> I ran a gay rights organization for nearly a decade, fighting the bias far too many folks have against my community. With my feet firmly planted on the high road, maybe a bit too firmly planted, I educated and advocated to change hearts and minds and to point out the real and lasting damage of bias against the LGBT communities. But an inward look at my own biases? Nah, <laughs> nope. Too busy fighting the ones I see in others. Well, someone pointed me to a book on this topic, and it was eye-opening to me in a very big way. After reading it, I tracked down the author because what he has to say has such impact on the work of nonprofit leaders. So many of you are fighting the bias folks have towards marginalized communities, homeless, the poor, folks who are somehow thought of as less than. Where does that come from? And for those of you who are working to change hearts and minds, how do you best approach it? Today we talk to an author and a researcher who will introduce us to the concept of the blind spot. And it's not just a turn of phrase. Welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. Not enough money, too many cooks, and abundance of passion. Leading nonprofits isn't easy. Joan Gary, author, blogger, and founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab gets it. She is here to help. Anthony Greenwald is a professor of psychology at the University of Washington after attaining a bachelor's from Yale and a PhD from Harvard. For over 30 years, Tony has been studying how minds operate in social contexts. His partner in this work has been Mazarin Banaji. Their special focus has been on the unconscious, automatic, less reflective aspects of the mind and the decisions humans make about themselves and others in society. Their analysis has centered on social categories of gender, race, age, sex, sexuality, disability, religion, politics, nationality, and the many other social groups that mark our modern society. In 2013, Tony joined forces with Mazarin to write Blind Spot, Hidden Biases of Good People. This book explores hidden biases that we all carry from a lifetime of experiences with social groups, all the ones I just outlined, gender, race, ethnicity, religion, social class, sexuality, disability status, and nationality. Blind spot is a metaphor to capture that portion of the mind that houses hidden biases. The author uses it to ask about the extent to which social groups, without our awareness or conscious control, shape our likes and dislikes, our judgments about people's characters, abilities, and potentials. I read it, loved it, I found it fascinating, and a bit unsettling all at the same time. Tony, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you, Joan. I'm, uh, I appreciate your interest very much. I'm very much looking forward to talking with you. So how did you find yourself studying this particular area, Tony? What was the sort of the motivation and the driver for you? I had a long history of research on technical topics and which these brought me in the 1980s into investigating unconscious cognition, how the mind operates in response to stimuli that are not even consciously perceived. There's a sort of long story there, but gradually I got interested in how my colleagues in social psychology and personality had been 
studying things that gave indirect indications of processes operating outside of conscious awareness. Uh, Mazarin and I, who had been, we actually started working together in 1980 when she arrived as a graduate student at Ohio State University. I was still on the faculty there before coming to University of Washington. We started working together on various things, and it wasn't until about a decade had passed. She had gotten her PhD, gone off, got a great job at Yale University, uh, where she stayed for a number of years before moving to Harvard University. And in the early 1990s or late 1980s, we started collaborating on social processes that operated outside of awareness. So that's, uh, there's many influences shaping this, and I've tried to write about them, but that's the short story. It's a, it's a, just a fascinating topic to me, and um, so glad that the two of you teamed up to take a closer look at it. So the title of your book talks about hidden biases in good people, I think it is actually, not of good people, hidden biases in good people. No, it's actually hidden biases of ah, good okay, people. Good. <laughs> <laughs> so I was right the first time. Okay, so hidden yes. biases uh, of good people. Um, what do you mean when you say, you know, good is a, clearly a relative uh, and a sort of a judgmental sort of term? When you when you thought about this, the title of this book, what did you mean when you said the word, decided to use the word good people? Okay, before I get into that, let me just say a brief word about the first word of the title, which is blind spot, which is known as uh, something in the eye. This is actually visual perception. There's a blind spot in the eye, and it's difficult to demonstrate. You have to, and the book starts with a demonstration of it, but it's actually a way to demonstrate to yourself that there can be something right in front of your eyes that you can't see. we're past blind spot now. Hidden biases of good people. Why good people? Well, the work that Mazarin and I did was showing biases that we ourselves possessed. And one by one, we would look at race stereotypes, race attitudes, gender biases, sexual orientation biases, disability biases, and find that we possessed them as they could be demonstrated on the measure we had started using really strongly. And of course, we thought we were good people. (laughs) (laughs) So if we have these biases, it won't be at all surprising to us to find that many other people who, like we did, think of themselves as good people share the same biases. And the, the research has shown that indeed many people do have these biases and people don't need to regard themselves as uh, bad or evil people because they have these biases. These biases are pretty much inescapable in the society we live in and in a great many other societies. This doesn't happen just in the United States. Well, what I found, I think that's what I found both fascinating and and somewhat unsettling about uh, the book is the inescapable nature of them. And it's, it's, it's actually because of the way that your brain operates. And, um, 
And I was really struck the first chapter or two where you talk about how your mind operates and that there literally is a blind spot. Um, really struck me. And I wondered if you might just expand what you're talking about just a minute ago. And maybe even, I don't know if you can, some of the examples you give, there are visuals associated with them. So I know, I know how, how best to communicate to our listeners how this blind spot actually works. Can you give it a go? Well, the blind, the visual blind spot is a metaphor of uh, an area of information that is st stored in our brain, social knowledge, we can call it, that we do not have conscious access to. These are associations that have been piled up over years as a consequence of being exposed to a great deal of social experience. These are what is demonstrated on our test, which is called the implicit association test, are these biases that actually cannot be reported on, but can be revealed indirectly by the test. So we describe the test as providing a method of looking inside the mental blind spot to this social knowledge. And it has been a very useful device for that. So yes, blind spot is a metaphor because uh, it involves visual stuff, but the involvement of vision is also very interesting because we make a good deal of use of visual illusions as an analogy, a very close analogy to what the brain is doing with social knowledge. Now, if one goes to one's uh, web browser and types in visual illusions, one can find some very interesting and sort of mind-blowing things in which you see things that are clearly not what you are looking at, <laughs> not the literal information you are looking at. So we do use an illusion that's called a checkerboard illusion, where you see two squares on a checkerboard as different color. But when you take a strip away the context and the surrounding areas, you see that they're actually the same color, but you see them as different shades. One looks almost white, the other looks uh, very dark. And this is clearly an illusion. There's another illusion that we can't present in the book that's a color illusion that involves seeing a square on the surface of a cube as either yellow or blue. And it depends upon what appears to be the background light you're looking at it in. And this is something that automatically operates on the brain. And when you expose this illusion by stripping away the context, you see one of the squares that looks yellow is actually gray, and the other square that looks blue is actually gray. The important thing about using these visual illusions is that we cannot instruct our conscious minds to undo these illusions. You can know about the illusion. You can know that the illusion can be undone by taking away the context, but your brain actually does not have the power to inter intercept, interrupt the automatic mechanisms that are producing the illusion. 
Is this what you, uh, I'm, I'm remembering um, one of the fascinating um, constructs in your book is this thing called the mind bug. Is that what this, is that what it's kind of foundational to how your brain operates and how these hidden biases are formed? Um, or what you described as these visual illusions, are they, is, is that what a mind bug is? And, or, or can you expand on what, that, what, what you all meant by the phrase mind bug? Well, yes, it is related to what goes on into the visual in the visual illusions. I've pretty much stopped using the word mind bug because, for one reason, people don't <laughs> like bugs so much. Uh, uh, but and and I talk now about social illusions and visual illusions, so I use the word illusion now in place oh, of okay. mind bug. But yes, uh, Mazarin created the term mind bug, and it was actually a a brilliant borrowing of hers from the idea of computer software bugs, which has a history going back to the fact that when the first computers were constructed from electronic tubes and occupied roomfuls and things <laughs> that can now fit inside your pocket, uh, there were actually insects crawling around <laughs> on these and they would cause some damage uh, and those were the first bugs that uh, were found in computers. So the a mind bug was, uh, by analogy or metaphor, uh, something uh, crawling around in your brain that was producing effects that you didn't want. I'm I'm happier talking about this uh, as illusions, but it's mainly because I don't want to insult the audiences I speak to by suggesting that people have bugs inside their brains. It's funny. I actually found the phrase very sticky because of, of the sort of the connection between finding a, you know, sort of bugs in a computer, but I, I didn't know the real bug story about computers. So, um, so you're, you know, I found that your book got more and more interesting the more I read into it. And, um, in 1994, you you, um, you developed a tool that you referenced a few minutes ago that gives a really clear window into the a region of the mind inaccessible through these standard assessments. It's called the implicit association test. And in an article that you were um, interviewed for, um, you were quoted as saying that when you landed on this methodology, that it was, quote, a moment of jarring self-insight. I can't say if I was more personally distressed or scientifically elated to discover inso something inside my head that I had no previous knowledge of, end quote. So I'd love for you to tell our listeners a little bit about the implicit association test, a little bit how you designed it and, um, uh, and, and what it's like and how it operates. Okay. I'll go back to a little bit of history in, uh, in the early 1990s, Mazarin and I published an article in which we described the, the literature that had been piling up in our field of social and personality psychology showing indirectly the operation of things without people's awareness. And we reviewed all this, published it in 1995, and the last line of the article in which we reviewed this said, what we really need is a measure for individual differences in the attitudes and stereotypes that we were finding to be evidenced indirectly by all this research we were reviewing. Now, actually, in 
as you mentioned, in 1994, we did hit upon this method that later become, became called the implicit association test. Uh, it was actually 1994 was after that article published in 1995 had been completed and put to bed and set up for publication. So we couldn't add it to that. But that was when we started working uh, on uh, the line of research that has occupied both of us for now 25 years or so. And in 1994, we experimented with the first version of the implicit association test in which we wanted to see if we could pick up people's preference for flowers relative to insects. These are two types of objects that we're not worried about being prejudiced or biased toward, although I suppose we could speak, entomologists might think that most of us are biased against insects. But basically, we knew that most people find flowers to be pleasant and find insects to be bothersome. And so we're looking for a way to pick up, to devise a measure that could pick this up without actually asking people to tell us what they thought of flowers and insects. So we devised this test that at first I called it a mixed judgment test, and I, it was related to some work I had done previously. And I programmed a computer to present to me a series of names of uh, flowers and names of insects and words meaning pleasant things and words meaning unpleasant things. So four different categories, flowers, insects, pleasant words, unpleasant words. And the device of the test was to have people classify these as flowers or insects and pleasant or unpleasant, but only using two keys, not four keys on the computer to identify the categories. And one key had to be used, for example, for flowers and pleasant words, which we expected would go together well, the other key for insects and unpleasant words. So that was the first task uh, mm -hmm. that I tried. And I found, boy, this is easy. I can, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm responding to four different categories of words and just flying through it, selecting the correct key. And then I encountered the first series of words in which the instructions had to change, which was to put the flowers and the unpleasant words on the same key and the insects and the pleasant words on the same key. And right away, I started going much slower and making errors. It was just very difficult to press one key for both flower names and unpleasant words, the other key for both insect names and pleasant words. And that was how the IAT was born. That wasn't the moment of elation and discovery, however, <laughs> because I, after playing with the flower and insect version of this procedure, and then devising another one that involved musical instruments and weapons, which were also things that I thought would be easily judged as either relatively pleasant or unpleasant, uh, and finding that that worked pretty much the same way the flower insect one did. There, It was easy to do when instruments and pleasant words were on the same key, but hard to do when weapons and pleasant words were on the same key. I t took the first step of changing it into one of the social 
attitudes that we're interested in, mm-hmm. which was race attitudes. Mm-hmm. And that test is now done on the internet with pictures of faces of African Americans and European Americans that are easily classified as white or black or as European American versus African American. We sometimes use either way to describe them. And at that time, didn't have the pictures, the pro- computer programmable to present pictures. So we used instead names that were associated publicly with African-American or European-American. So Brian and Susan, even though these sometimes can be names of African-American people, quite obviously, they are more typically associated with European-American and Lorenzo or uh, Janil or uh, some other names may be more associated with African-Americans. So we had lists of names that subjects did not have difficulty uh, judging as one or the other racial group. And now I just did, let's say I'm doing the uh, flower insect test over again, only instead of flower names, I am now looking at European-American names, which could be male or female. Uh, And instead of insects, I'm looking at African-American names also could be uh, male or female. And this is the moment of discovery. I regarded myself as someone pretty much lacking in prejudicial biases. Uh, So I said, okay, well, I, I may learn something about this myself, but I should be able to do these two versions of the test, one in which European-American names and pleasant words get the same response, the other in which African-American names and pleasant words get the same response. I probably, and you, figure, you probably figured to yourself, well, this will be a good way to see, uh, um, it, this might actually be an interesting test for other people who have biases. Exactly, exactly. Uh, I probably don't have any bias that'll show up on this test, uh, but it, if, it, if the test is any good, Uh, it might work for others. (laughs) So I did this test, and it was just as if I was doing the flower insect test. I could do one version of it very easily if I was putting uh, the European-American names and the pleasant words on one key, African-American names, unpleasant words on the other. That I just zipped through. And when I switched it, when I had to give the same response to... Uh, European-American names and unpleasant words with one hand and African-American and pleasant words with the other, I slowed down and started making errors. This was very disturbing, and I figured, I'll just practice this a while. I'll get past it. I repeated it. Same result. Repeated it again. Same result. I decided, okay, I will just force myself to go faster when I'm doing the task that I'm having more difficulty with, which is the uh, African-American names and pleasant words on the same key. So I said, okay, I'm going faster. What happened is I just started making lots of errors and I could not go fast and make correct responses. So this was distressing, but pretty much at the same time as I was doing this, I realized that this is something that is going to be surprising not only to me and most of the people I know who, like me, think that they don't carry any biases, but to a great many of my colleagues and other people 
uh, I have to start working on this. And I did, and I persuaded Mazarin uh, to start working uh, on it also. She was across the country. I was in Seattle. She was in New Haven, Connecticut at Yale. And she and her lab started working on it. Uh, And uh, the rest is... So that was about... 1995, when I got Mazarin to start working on this. And so that's now 23 years ago. So mm-hmm. that's how long we've been actively collaborating on the implicit association test. And yeah. It, it's 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 totally fascinating, and um, we'll point listeners shortly to to uh, uh, to Project Implicit so they can uh, they can experience this test and 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 play around with it as a as a means for discussion. And we'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. But the other thing that was really interesting for me in the book is that <clears throat> these biases. Um, travel in all sorts of different ways. And um, I'm a huge Malcolm Gladwell fan. He, uh, The Tipping Point is a little bit of a Bible for me. And I was really struck by Malcolm Gladwell, who is a biracial man, his reaction to the test results. And you, you tell a story about his um, interview on Oprah and him talking about this test um, and his own results. And I wondered, uh, can you clue the listeners into what he had to say after he took the test? Yes. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell and I appeared on the same uh, episode of Oprah. He, of course, was the featured guest. Uh, I was sitting in the audience ready to answer some questions or and, and to make some comments. But I had met Malcolm a few years earlier when he was working on writing the book Blink, and he first described uh, his reaction to the implicit association test there. Uh, as you said, he's biracial. His mother is African-American and his father's uh, white. He thought that he should like both races equally. He had the same kind of result from the implicit association test that I did, that Mazarin did, and that many others do. And he was disturbed by this uh, in probably more than I was the first time. Uh, Absolutely. But I, as I said, I was disturbed. And he described that on Oprah and he uh, said, you know, how can this be? How can I have a preference for my father's race over my mother's race? And he wrote about it in uh, Blink. He mm-hmm. talked about it on Oprah and he certainly helped early on to publicize the implicit association test and to encourage others to try it. So we are talking with Dr. Tony Greenwald, a psychologist and a researcher who spent much of his career working to understand how minds work in social contexts. He's the co-author, along with Mazarin Banaji, of Blind Spot. Hidden Biases of Good People, a book I found both fascinating and unsettling. He has developed a test to help folks bring these hidden biases kind of out of the closet. In the context of all of this, what is this conflict between what we might call my implicit and my explicit attitudes? And, and if, there, 
if they're at odds with one another, which one is real? Like what reflects the real me? Is it more defining that I failed the race implicit association test of yours or that I voted for Barack Obama? Like who's, who's the real me? Well, the, this conflict that many people have, such as myself uh, and Malcolm Gladwell, is a very real one. And some have asked pretty much the question you just asked, which is, okay, which is the true me? Is it the, what comes out on the implicit association test, or is it what I honestly and genuinely believe I believe myself to be, and I'm, now I'm talking about myself, an egalitarian person. Is that the truth about me? Or uh, is the truth about me that I'm uh, racist in some way? Uh, this mm -hmm. has been a question that we have tried to cope with. And the way it is understood now by uh, not only by me and Mazarin and by many others who are doing research on related to this is that both of these are parts of our knowledge and they both function. Uh, and the interesting thing is to understand where and how they function differently. I mentioned before that uh, I was asking, you know, am I truly racist or not? I decided that it was not appropriate to talk about what the IAT, that's the Implicit Association Test, measures when it does the black-white task as racism, because there's nothing about the IAT that involves the slightest expression of hostility toward an outgroup or mm -hmm. any group. And the hallmark of what is understood by uh, social scientists of racism is a hostility an outward directed hostility. So th what the IAT measures is definitely not that. And so we describe what the IAT measures as associations, as social knowledge that uh, is not necessarily associated with hostility, uh, but is evaluative and it is a real preference that can affect judgments. Interesting. So, so yep. we now just try to study both the implicit, what we call the implicit attitude, which is what the IAT can measure, and the explicit attitude, which what gets measured when people are asked to describe their racial attitudes. So um, if you do some homework about all of the work that you and Mazarin has, have done, there has been some controversy about your research and some skepticism. Um, and I wondered if you just talk a little bit about that and sort of how you as authors and researchers have, con you know, so what the, what the, the heart of the controversy is and, and sort of how you think about that. Yeah. Let me distinguish two types of controversy. There, there are some more that I think there are other controversies relative minor. One is the controversy about whether there is anything that is unconscious that actually plays a role in directing our behavior. There are many people, laypersons, and uh, some psychologists also, who just refuse to accept the idea of things operating in their brain that they are not consciously aware of. We think that this is uh, a holdover of 
a past paradigm that has to be abandoned, a uh, past way of thinking that everything I know about everything I'm doing, uh, there's nothing happens, my brain does, uh, that I don't know about. And we do use the visual illusions to show that people, that their brains do things that they don't know about. So that's part of the controversy. That part of the controversy is difficult to argue against because the people who hold uh, the view that there is only conscious judgment and nothing uh, guides their own behavior that they can't be aware of, uh, we just can't talk to them because there's certain types of evidence that they don't recognize. The other part is uh, more interesting and productive of research. It has to do with, okay, well, what does this have to do with behavior? Uh, right. We can measure these attitudes by self-report. That's the explicit attitudes. Or we can measure them with the IAT. Then we call that the implicit attitudes. Uh, which of these predicts behavior? And it turns out that they both predict behavior. And they both predict behavior consistently weekly, meaning we do studies in which we look for correlations between judgments people make and behavior decisions they make and their IAT scores and their self-report attitude scores. And we find they're both correlated uh, in the race domain. They're both relatively weakly correlated and the IAT correlations tend to be a little higher, but not much higher. And some of the criticism associated with this is, well, these are just small correlations. Uh, they don't really account for anything important. And that's an argument that uh, I and others are prepared to take up and respond to, because it's easy to show that small effects of, of these correlations uh, can be very important because they describe effects that may not occur all the time, but they can repeatedly affect the same people and they can affect very large numbers of people. So they can produce effects that just become totally noticeable uh, and massive mm -hmm. when they get scaled up into multiple repetitions on the same person mm -hmm. or large numbers of people. Interest. So interesting. So <clears throat> are we stuck with these biases? Is there hope? Your, your test kind of turns a hidden bias into a visible one. And I, I think to myself, you know, we're talking today largely to folks who are board chairs or staff leaders or, you know, staff members of nonprofit organizations, as I mentioned earlier, often sort of working on behalf of and advocating for marginalized communities, those that are thought of as less than. So is there a way... Um, what, 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 is there any hope? I mean, so we have, so I have this bias and I, and now you've sort of brought it out of the closet. What, do, what do we do now? Like, what are the, are there strategies? Well, okay. You asked if we're stuck <laughs> with the biases and in a sense, we yeah. are stuck with them in almost the same way we're stuck with visual illusions and we don't people have been doing research for at least 20 years trying to find ways to eradicate uh, and get rid of the implicit biases, basically to do things to 
interventions that will change people's IAT scores. We now understand that this is very difficult to do, and there is not yet any solidly established method of eradicating, eliminating, even strongly reducing these implicit biases. So that's distressing. But it does tell us something, which is that if we want to get rid of the effects of implicit biases, and I, th- I think many people do, they because they recognize that implicit biases can cause unintended dis- discrimination and can cause people to do things that they uh, do not mm-hmm. want to do uh, and they would prefer not to do. If we want to get rid of those, what we have to do is prevent them from operating. And in the case of the visual illusions, we can prevent them from operating by stripping away the context. And I regularly do that when I'm showing audiences the illusions. I take away the context that causes the illusion and the illusion disappears. Well, can we do that in making, in interacting with other people? This is much harder in that case. There's some cases in which it's remarkably easy And the example I always come back to is when in the 1970s, orchestras in the United States and gradually around the world elsewhere started auditioning instrumentalists for new open positions in the orchestra behind a screen. So uh, for one thing, the audition committee would not know who they were auditioning and could not exert biases in favor of the students of their uh, favorite conservatory uh, or any other biases. And the remarkable thing that happened and was noted not long after this blind audition procedure started was that women started to be hired much more by symphony orchestras. So starting in the mid-70s and extending through the next 20 years or so, the proportion of women in major symphony orchestras in instrumentalist positions rose from about 20% to 40%, which is attributable, I think, mainly to the widespread adoption of this blind audition procedure. So because, you, because what happened, you stripped away the context. The context, exactly. Yeah, Thank, interesting. Thanks for so interesting. reminding me. Of so that. interesting. Yes. So when you and I spoke, you talked about the tackling of this issue. Um, needs to be sort of a collective one in an organization. And um, again, my primary audience here is uh, the nonprofit sphere. So in a nonprofit organization, how might a nonprofit leader approach um, addressing this in uh, her or his organization? Well, that's a great question. I'm associated with a few nonprofits myself. So however, they're pretty small. And when you're Uh, the ones I'm associated with. And when they're small, you don't make that many decisions so that you have great opportunity uh, to observe whether you are systematically doing things that produce biasing effects. It's easier when you're making lots of decisions. Now, many nonprofits, they may not have many people that they employ. One can consider, one does want to get rid of bias in making decisions about who to hire, but many nonprofits are supporting activities that benefit clientele of various sorts. They may be 
uh, children, they may be immigrants, uh, they may be people who are poor, and one can, I'm, okay, let's assume a nonprofit that is giving grants to people to do good things. Nonprofits are run by good people and <laughs> do good things. Uh, how do they know if they are doing those good things equally? It will vary. How to do this will vary. But one of the things one can do is in considering grant applications from uh, people who want to get awards in order to do their good things, ask them, okay, are you keeping track of how the good deeds you are doing are distributed among the people who might potentially receive them? Are they going equally, regardless of race, gender, age, poverty, disability, etc.? And this is a question I think that can be answered, although when people write grant applications, uh, they may not routinely provide the data on yeah. this. And in fact, they may not even know the data. So one thing that can be done by nonprofit leaders is to develop policies of what should be included in grant applications. And those grant applications could not only describe uh, equal opportunity of the nonprofit in hiring its staff, uh, but also in distributing its re resources for which they probably have much more data or, or potentially have much more data than staff if they have relatively small staff. Yeah, it's. I think the other thing that's quite interesting for me is, um, you know, those organizations that are advocating for some of these groups that um, for whom there are you know, hidden biases either in themselves or in others. I just think it's just a, a remarkable conversation for a nonprofit to have about these hidden biases in themselves as well as in the people they're working to educate or the people that they're trying to lobby or if they're trying to get visibility for their communities, that there's, it's just such a it's why I really wanted you to talk about this today, because it's such a remarkable thing to consider that we're all living with these hidden biases and that it can predict behavior. It can, it isn't necessarily always, as you said, malicious or, you know, there's just, a, there's just a lot to think about here. And I, and so we're just about out of time. And I, I wanted to say that if you're listening to us today and you'd like to know more, you should absolutely pick up this book. It's called Blind Spot, Hidden Biases of Good People. Uh, I just recommended it to a client who's thinking about a, a staff offsite and using it as a pre-read to sort of generate a really good conversation um, because this particular client is advocating for a community that is seen as less than. So it can be a great um, opportunity to start a conversation between board and staff, bring those hidden biases out, and um, brainstorm for strategies for contending with them. So the other thing I want to do is I want to point folks to the website that allows you to take one or more of these implicit association tests. It's called implicit.harvard.edu. There are a variety of tests there. 
and also just a wealth of information, what the results tell, as well as a blog that offers some of the more current research about how we might alter these implicit attitudes and behaviors. And as I said, I, I think it's just, I just wanted to put uh, Tony's words and his voice out here so that um, you could see this as an important resource in your work as a nonprofit leader. So Tony, I just really wanted to say thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for the work that you're doing on behalf of all of us good people. And, um, and thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Well, thank you, Joan, very much. I'm glad to do it, and I welcome the opportunity to uh, speak to your fans uh, and who listen to your podcast. I'm sure there are that they are a very important group, and I'm actually a member of that group myself. Exactly. And it is, well, there's, you figure there are 1.5 million nonprofits in this country. Um, and uh, when you think about volunteers, board members, and staff, it is a massive pond that we fish in, and providing them with resources is um, sort of one of my kind of core missions in my business. So, Tony, thank you, and thank you for listening. Um, don't hesitate to join me over at joangary.com, that's with two R's, uh, and subscribe to my blog where I offer weekly uh, pieces of practical, actionable, story-based, and sometimes funny advice. And um, also, don't hesitate to look at the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, which is our subscription membership site for board and staff leaders of small nonprofits. You can learn more about that at nonprofitleadershiplab.com. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll see you next time. And until then, thanks for all you do. Joan Gary's obsession with supporting your work takes many forms. Subscribe to her blog at JoanGary.com, reaching over 100,000 visitors monthly from over 170 countries. Explore the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, the best online resource for board and staff leaders of small nonprofits, at NonprofitLeadershipLab.com. Join 15,000 kindred spirits on Facebook at Thriving Nonprofit with Joan Gary.